Welcome to episode two of Canon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I called one of the world's leading linguists, David Crystal. I was introduced to Crystal's work my senior year of college in a Shakespeare course, and I've enjoyed his work ever since. Uh, quick Amazon search. Uh, you would find books about the English language, of course, all the way to Shakespeare. So today we talked about the, the life of a linguist. I asked if text messages are ruining the English language. And lastly, we chat about his work with the bard, William Shakespeare. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. Hello, hello. Hello, David. Yeah? How are Am you, I audible? Am I audible? You are. We're just going to, we, we good on checks? Okay. Thank you so much. No, it's a pleasure. Glad to manage it. Awesome. Well, it's so nice to meet you. I, Thank you. I have, uh, I've enjoyed plenty of your books and, your, and the lectures that I can find. Um, oh, bless you. Yeah, thank you. So this is Canon Calls. Canon Press is a small publishing house in moscow idaho i know i looked you up oh very good okay very good <laughs> excellent okay well and you still took the phone call which means a lot yeah, well there we are <laughs> so for if my audience isn't totally familiar with you can you orient <laughs> us to who david crystal is well i'm what am i now i'm now i'm honorary professor of linguistics at the university of bangor here in wales okay um but i started out as a career academic at the University of London back in the 19, well, 60s, really, uh, working in uh, in English language studies there, and then got a job uh, teaching linguistics. Uh, this was at a time when linguistics was developing as a subject around the world, the very early days for that subject, uh, first in Bangor and then at the University of Reading. So I was in Reading for 10 years, um, Reading down in Berkshire near London. And then uh, left Reading in 1984 and came back up here to Wales to live. This is where I'm talking to you from Hollyhead, which is a little port in the northwest of Wales, where the ferries go to Dublin. That, that's the right centre of the British Isles. And uh, I set up here as a kind of independent scholar, a kind of freelance guy, really, work writing and lecturing and broadcasting, that sort of thing and have this association with the University of Bangor, as I said. So that's me. Fantastic. And I think I've heard you mention before, in terms of your initial interest in words and how things sound, was that in your neighborhood and you wondered why they sounded different over there and they sounded different over there. Is that the case? Oh, that's, yeah, mm -hmm. that's exactly actually right. Yes, I grew up in, in this little town of Hollyhead. Okay. And this is uh, very much a Welsh-speaking town. Uh, when I was young, uh, it was also Irish was here as well. You know, there were a lot of Irish immigrants in the area, a lot of Irish Catholics uh, in Holyhead, biggest Catholic population in North Wales, actually, at the time. Uh, so I, I was reared in a monolingual environment. My mum was uh, English. This is wartime. My, my dad wasn't around. Um, and uh, on the streets, I would go out. And my mum told me this is when I was about three and I would come back complaining that, that there were some people I could understand and some people I couldn't understand. And please, mum, you know, why is this? What, what's going on here? And she would say, well, David, you see, that's because they're speaking the Welsh language. Oh, really? And I got very curious at that point. 
and uh, went to see my Uncle Joe, who was a Welsh speaker, and he to told me all about Welsh, and then he started to teach me some. And so suddenly I realized that there were two ways of talking in the world, and they were different, and isn't this amazing? And that's how it all started, I think, that curiosity. I think anybody who grows up in a bilingual or multilingual area, or multi-dialectal areas, not just languages, but dialects too, and perceives that people talk in different ways, inevitably there's a sort of curiosity about why this is. And that's certainly how I started anyway. Awesome. Awesome. So, and you edited encyclopedias, correct? Uh, well, two sorts of things. The, I, I write, or used to write encyclopedias, and I also edited them. Okay. Uh, two different tasks. From the language side, they're all authored encyclopedias, the two big encyclopedias, the Encyclopedia of Language, Encyclopedia of the English Language, they're authored works. Right. But there was a time some 10, 20 years ago when I was editing general encyclopedias for firms, which is a very, very different sort of exercise, not particularly to do with language at all. Now, early on, did you teach in this field, just as far as, I, as your career went? Right, right from the beginning. Okay. And because, as I mentioned before, uh, linguistics was in its earliest stages. I mean, nobody knew who, what linguistics was in the 1960s, really. In the States, there were quite a few linguists around, but in Britain, hardly anybody. And certainly there were no courses uh, in linguistics in any university. And so I joined a department, which was one of the first departments of linguistics in the country. I was brought in as a very junior, junior lecturer in those days uh, and told to teach things like grammar and semantics and pragmatics and things like this, things I'd never heard of, really. You know, I mean, I had undergraduate training, of course, but I, I'd never been asked to teach them before. And so uh, I had to learn how to teach them. And I, you know how it is. You'd be teaching a class and be a couple of weeks ahead of the class, as it were, in <laughs> what you're teaching. But there were no textbooks in those days, no introductory textbooks. I couldn't say, you know, hey, guys, here's a book on semantics. Read this and we'll talk about it. There were no introductory books on semantics, no introductory books on linguistics even. Right. And so there came a point when I felt, look, I, I, I've got to write one uh, because I need books to help me teach. And so in the process of working out how to teach the subject, you end up with the kind of blueprint for a possible book on the subject. And a couple of years after I started, I wrote this little book called What is Linguistics? And then a little while later, the Penguin book, Linguistics. And these became, you know, quite well known, very, they sold sure. quite a lot, simply because there was no competition. They weren't the best <laughs> books in the world because it was so early on. There wasn't any competition. And Four weeks ahead it, of your students and you're the leading, you're the leading guy. <laughs> so I, I think so many people have said this is how with a new subject this is how they've learned the subject by having to teach it right uh, and being just those few steps ahead of the class that you're teaching and then it's only lasted a while i mean after a while of course uh, things built up and more books got written and more articles got written journals started to come on the scene the linguistics associations of the world started to beef up you know the, Right. Linguistics Association of Great Britain over here was founded round about then. So suddenly you find yourself part of a, a community which wasn't there before. And that's immensely helpful. Sure. So now did this this led you to doing things such as editing encyclopedias and working on those? Or were you already a part of that at that point? That was that was a lot later. Okay. I mean, if you're going to do 
an encyclopedia of language or the English language, then you've really got to have an awful lot of stuff under your belt before you dare to take it on. More than it's those four weeks. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's a heck of an ambitious prospect, sure. isn't it? You know, an encyclopedia. Yeah. I mean, you've got to cut pretty well everything. Um, and so it take, you, you couldn't do it if you were a young guy. Uh, sure. And it took me, well, until the 90, late 1980s before I felt confident enough to do it. And even then, I needed some cavalry. Uh, so for the right. language encyclopedia, I had a little committee, a board of linguists from all over the world. And I would be able to send my stuff out to them and say, hey, what do you think? Am I getting this right? Because uh, one guy can't do the whole subject. He, you know, he has to have this kind of feedback from specialists. Right. And even though by that time I had written quite a large number of specialist books, there were areas where I, I needed the help. And so uh, although I, my name's on the front page, I'm the author, very early on in the book, I say, hey, listen, everybody, without these guys, this book wouldn't be as it is. Right. Right. And you recently uh, wrote one. Uh, was it 2016? The Cambridge Encyclopedia of the English Language. Yes. Yeah. That came out first in 1995, first yep. edition. Okay. And then a second edition came out in 2003. And then the third edition, which is the one I've been working on last year, came out uh, just a couple of months ago, actually. But probably when people sort of asked me, you know, what am I doing back in 16, 17, 18? My answer was always, I am prepared to write a new edition of this encyclopedia. And, you know, Jake, writing a new edition of an encyclopedia, like any book, really, it's like writing the book all over again. Because right. so much has changed right. in that period, you know. Is that a good thing, do you think, as far as language is concerned, that it's changing? Well, I mean, the short answer is everything. Um, as far as the English language is concerned, it's quite extraordinary what has happened in the last 15 years. I mean, English has increasingly become a global language, and so suddenly you're going to have to study parts of the world that previously you didn't think were very important from the point of view of the English language. And now suddenly, that you know, it's a big language there. And so every time a country adopts English, it adapts it. Uh, you know, a, local, a new local dialect comes up, if you like. So suddenly there's more stuff to study there. But the biggest change, without a shadow of a doubt, has been in relation to the Internet. Sure. No question about that. I mean, think back now, 1995, my first edition. Internet isn't even mentioned, you know, 95. How, how many people watching this cast uh, remember 1995? Of course, if you're over a certain age, no problem. But young sure. people weren't even born then. Right. And, and, and the World Wide Web is 1991. So it had hardly got onto our awareness by 1995. I remember I was writing this book in, in 1991, two, three. When did people first send an email if? whenever they did. Well, you know, older people, probably not until the mid-1990s. There was no Google, that's 1999, right. you know. So suddenly all these things that weren't there in 95 became important to include in the 2003 edition. Sure. But now think about 2003. <laughs> all right, so the web is there and blogging is there and text messaging and instant messaging and, uh, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and all those games and that sort of thing. Right. But no Facebook, 2004, no YouTube, 2005, no Twitter, 2006, 
etc etc right you know 15 years has seen an extraordinary growth in social media in particular sure. and each one of these new developments means a new style of language a, a new dialect internet dialect if you like so that's the biggest area of development without a doubt so with the globalization of english you know countries um you know us learning about countries as you said it through the english lens um what is it about english that it's the one that's the global language um why not you know why not some other country or another dialect <clears throat> well there are historical reasons and present day reasons the historical reasons are that once upon a time uh, there was a british empire uh, and you guys were part of it uh, so suddenly <laughs> You know, English traveled the Atlantic and became a global language, or at least an international language. This is back in now talking about the 16th and 17th centuries here. And then the empire went all around the world. So you have Australian and New Zealand English and South African English and all the rest of it. And, and all those countries like Nigeria and Ghana, Singapore and all of this, all as a result of political uh, and military uh, reasons. So that's the first reason. Right. Uh, and the, the power of America, as it grew in the 19th century, became, became reinforced that, that originally British trend. And the second reason is the, uh, the Industrial Revolution, the fact that English became the language of science and technology. Most, it's still the main language of science and technology around the world, but you know, it really grew in importance then. Then in the, third, in the 19th century, the third reason, economic reasons, money talks, as they say, well, which language is it talking? Well, it was the dollar and the pound, wasn't it, in the 19th right. century? And still today, chiefly the dollar in most parts of the world. So another force there. And then in the 20th century, cultural uh, pressure uh, forcing English around the world. The fact of the matter is that virtually every significant cultural development that's taken place in the 20th century either began in the medium of English or was soon facilitated by the medium of English. You know, think of advertising agencies, uh, right. the, in the internet, and so on. Uh, by facilitated, I mean, for example, cinema. I mean, cinema began in France, so it was French, right. But 20 years later, where was it? In Hollywood, of course, right. and the star system grew. And today, you know, 80% of the world's films are in English. And so English is, for historical reasons, uh, the primary language of international communication, not for any brilliant reason to do with the English language as such, simply because circumstances made it so. And so you go around the world now and you ask people, you know, why do you want to learn English? And they will say, because I want access to the world, you know, to the political world, to the economic world in particular. Sure. I want to improve my quality of life and I'll do that best by learning English. My hope is that by doing this, they don't then forget their mother tongue and their ancestral languages. That's another issue. But certainly that's the reason why English has become pride of place. And all the evidence suggests that it's continuing in that way. I mean, the statistics are, to go back to those three editions of the encyclopedia, in 1995, 1 1.5 billion, 1,500 million people using English around the world. Wow. By 2000, that had grown to 2 billion. And the revision I've just made is 2.3 billion. So it's still growing. 
Right. Though perhaps not as fast as it used to be, you know. Interesting. It used to be slowing down a little bit, but it's still growing. And no other language at the moment is anywhere near competing with it, which is not to say that in a hundred or a thousand years' time, there might be a totally different world set and a totally different universal language. But at the moment, English seems set to stay. So you've, you've talked a lot about texting and the emailing. You even just mentioned how the internet is changing how we talk. You know, I can think of several English teachers in my past who could see this as that would make them nervous a bit. Does it make you nervous at all? No, never. Um, and the mythology that surrounded the arrival of these new uh, varieties of English um, was a mythology. I mean, everybody is always, uh, there's always a prophet of doom, several of them that come out of the woodwork uh, when a new technology arrives. We saw this with the telephone in the 19th century. People were scared stiff of it, thinking it was going to be the end of uh, face-to-face interaction. Uh, we saw it with printing in the 14th, 15th century. We saw it with broadcasting in the 1920s. We've seen it with the internet. Faster when it first came out. A lot of people said this. When text messaging came along, oh, Lord, this is the end, surely, for the reasons that you mentioned. You see, people said, look at these new uh, these text messages. They're, they're full of crazy abbreviations. The young people of today are cooking them up in order to uh, keep their language secret from us adults. It's anarchy going on out there. They're inventing these new abbreviations. They're filling their text messages with them. They're putting them into their homework in school. It's They can't spell. And all of this was going on. This is Now we're talking 2001, 2002 here. That's a little later in the United States. Text messaging took a little longer to take off in the States than in Britain. Really? Uh, yeah, we can go into that if you like. But sure. the point is that when the research started, uh, it was quite clear that this was total rubbish. Uh, when people started to analyze emails, they discovered that only 10% of the words on average in emails were being abbreviated. You know, most words were in standard spelling. And then you looked at the words and said, are young people inventing these? Are young people the first in the world to, to write the word S-E-E, I see, with a letter C, or Y-O-U with a letter U? And you realize, no, they're not. These abbreviations go back hundreds of years in English. You know, OK and things like that. Go back ages. I-O-U is an ancient abbreviation. And so you suddenly realize that the young people weren't inventing these things, that adults have been doing it for ages. And then spelling is, affects their spelling. Not in the slightest. Look, why do you abbreviate, you ask the kids? The kids say, because it's cool, uh, because, um, you know, my, everybody's doing it. All right, well, if it's cool to leave letters out, you've got to know where the letters are there in the first place in order to leave them out. And it, the research showed that the best texters are actually the best spellers. Wow. And if you're lousy at spelling, you're lousy at texting as well. Dyslexics, for example, have real trouble with, with text messaging. And so, all, and put them into their homework. Oh, I used to go around schools a lot. I still do. And I would ask the teachers, do you ever see the, any of these abbreviations in their homework? And the teachers would say no. And I'd ask the kids and I'd say to them, would you put abbreviations into your homework? And they look at me as if I'm nuts. And they say, that would be stupid. That'd be dumb. You know, of course we wouldn't. I mean, obviously, there's always the occasional maverick who, who does. But on the whole, none of this happened. 
And the clinching results came in the mid 2005, 6, 7 period, where it was shown that the more you text, the more practice you're having in reading and writing, and therefore the better your literacy scores, actually. It's actually a positive development rather than a negative one. And people say, really? That's impossible. But it actually is the case. So there's no reason to be worried about, no linguistic reason to be worried. Notice I'm speaking as a linguist here. (laughs) There might be be social reasons why kids shouldn't have their heads in their phones all the time. And and never, you know, at home, don't have a chat around the dinner table. And that's a social issue. But linguistically, there's no evidence whatsoever that text messaging or any other internet variety is causing any harm to to any language. Rather, they seem to be increasing the expressive richness of languages. That's fascinating. So I didn't know. I didn't know. Not only as you're saying that uh, it's actually. I'm moreover, Jake. They they seem to text messaging abbreviations seem to be on their way out. Um, I don't know about what's happening in the states, but over here. You know, I told you I go into schools quite a bit, and I was in one the other day, and one of the things I do is I get the kids to uh, collect a set of text messages, and we analyze them, you know, just to sure. see what's going on. And I got this collection of text messages, and there wasn't a single abbreviation to be seen. So I said to them, where have the abbreviations gone? And they look at me again as if I'm crazy, and they say, ah, they're not cool anymore. You know, we used to do that when we were kids, sure. say these 16- and 17-year-olds. Sure. And one lad said to me, the clinching argument, he said to me, I'll tell you when I stopped using abbreviations in text messages. I stopped when my dad started. There it is. In other words, <laughs> when adults steal young people's slang, it's no longer cool for young people to use their slang. And so th- these guys had stopped doing it. And I go into several schools and I just don't see abbreviations anymore. Maybe it's still around in the States. I don't know. But over here, they seem to be, for older kids, Sure, they're out of fashion. You know, I think, too, the, uh, the, the having the entire keyboard makes a difference. I remember my first phone, you know, you were texting with the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. You know, you're hitting it multiple yeah. times to get to the letter you need. Uh, and now that we have a full keyboard, I don't know that I use any except for any staples, you know. Yeah. And predictive texting has come in, hasn't it? You know, the, right? Exactly. You know, you just don't need the abbreviations as right. in the way that you used to do. So there are still a few that have stayed and will be part of the language as they always were. Not many of them are new, as I mentioned before, but there are a couple that are new. I mean, LOL, for instance, LOL. Right. Seems uh, a that seems have, it's gone beyond text messaging and chat rooms now, right? Uh, and is being used in all sorts of circumstances and even outside of the internet. Uh, I hear people now saying, hey, lol, and things like this. (laughs) So is that a little different? Would something like, you know, this was forged in convenience and inside of the text message and it's now gone beyond. Is is that that a different topic? Is that concerning? Or is that just, this is a new new word? It's not concerning. It's just a new word, a new new usage. Remember, there are millions of words in in English. uh, and, And to have a few thousand new ones come in is not a big deal. Uh, what's fascinating is to see how these things happen and how they change. Yes, lol uh, came along. Uh, it, it, it's really quite a sophisticated thing, is LOL. I mean, it means laughing out loud, doesn't it? Sure. Supposedly. Right. But in fact, very early on, when I say early on, I mean, you know, 10, 20 years ago, uh, a lot of people realized that you're not actually laughing out loud when you write lol in a message. 
So what do you do when you really are laughing out loud? And so you now get another usage developing, actual lol, or something like that. People write, don't they? You yep. to get up. And then uh, people realize that you can't just write lol everywhere and get away with it. There are sensitivities surrounding the use of the word lol. And so a lot of research has been done now uh, to, to examine the context in which a word like lol actually appears. So, for instance, I can say to you, um, yeah, yeah, let, let's go to the cinema tonight, lol. That's okay. <laughs> but will I, will I send you a message which says, I love you, lol? <laughs> no, you won't. Not if you really want it to mean No, because as soon as you're saying something emotional and sincere, lol destroys it. Right. And so, you know, it's a more sophisticated little bit of language than we think. It is. Yeah. I was just thinking in terms of uh, if somebody said something that, you know, I didn't think was actually that funny, I would just put LOL. Right. Or, you know. Yeah, exactly. There's an irony there, isn't right, there? Right. Right. All, all the time. And the latest one, I mean, the thing that uh, this is still going, of course, the story of LOL is largely over, I think. But uh, the, the latest one, the one that seems to be... Um, Attracting a lot of usage at the moment is the hashtag. Uh, yeah, the hashtag started in Twitter, uh, 2006. Right. wasn't there then particularly, but after a while, as Twitter became so successful, billions of tweets out there. Somebody thought, "Oh, we need to classify our tweets," and so the hashtag comes along. And so, if you write, you know, hashtag Shakespeare or hashtag Game of Thrones or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, then you can now search for all those items, and it's a convenient classification. And I thought that would be the end of the story. We're talking about 2010 now, something like that. Right. But then this rather interesting happened. People started using the hashtag in front of any word in the language that they wanted to draw your attention to. So I now get tweets, as probably you do, which are things like, you know, hashtag amazing, you know, right. hashtag fantastic. Right. And hashtag now turns up and it means the following word expresses my feelings, but it also anticipates your feelings, I hope. It's sort of reaching out to you in a certain way. Right. And as soon as that happened, and we're now into sort of 2012, 13, 14, I began to hear it spoken. And I now hear it increasingly spoken. And there are one or two um, lovely comedy sketches uh, on television, one from Ireland and one I saw in the States as well, uh, where the entire dialogue between the guys, everybody says hashtag it to each other all the time. <laughs> so hashtag Jake, we're going to have a hashtag talk now. Is hashtag that all right with you? Hashtag, you know, right. that thing. And when clever people do it, comedians do it, it's very, very funny. But I'm now hearing it being used in the streets. Not bad. Everybody yet. This is happening now. Uh, I haven't yet heard it in, in, you know, in older people using it, but a lot of younger people, by young, I don't mean very young kids. I mean sort of people in their 20s and so on. Uh, cool people are saying, yeah, uh, you know, hashtag beer <laughs> and things like that. Right. I'd be curious to know who are your favorite wordsmiths? Oh, gosh, that's so difficult to answer. Um, or tongueman, <laughs> as I think I've read in your books. Yeah. Yes, that's right. I mean, the you know the, the 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 superficial answer, but I do mean it. Is is all of them? Right. Uh, I, I I really 
do find insight in virtually every wordsmith that I've had the opportunity to read. The earliest one that influenced me most was my old teacher, Randolph Quirk, who uh, wrote a lovely book called The Uses of Eng the Use of English back in the 1960s. And I just swallowed that whole and thought, I just want to write like this guy. You know, so there are so many excellent wordsmiths around. Uh, too, too many, too many, really, to name, to yeah. name individual names. And the reason is why they're all fascinating is that each one brings their own individual experience to the pot. Sure. That's the beauty of language. No two people use it in the same way. No two people have the same background. So everybody's got a story to tell. Yeah. You know, everybody's got their two pence worth, I would say, two cents worth, I suppose you would say. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this, this is the interesting bit. All accents are a bit different. All dialects are a bit different. You know, your word stock in Jake's head is different than the word stock in David's head. And so just by eating and chatting after a while, if we're not in a sort of interview situation like this, but if we're just, you know, talking about everyday life and things like that, sooner or later, something's going to come up, which I've never heard before. You've never heard <laughs> before. And then if you're a linguist, you want to read about it. Right. Just, just yesterday. Uh, somebody sent me an email uh, with an attachment saying, David, you know, have you ever heard this? And it was a, a, the accent of Cape Breton Island. And I hadn't. I'd never heard that accent before. And it's a really strange, interesting accent, a mix of various kinds of influences, you know. And that's the beauty of it. Uh, that's why I study language, because whatever it was like yesterday, it's different today. It's going to be different tomorrow. And that's the best bit. Certainly. And with accents, uh, it leads me to the conversation I was trying to put off for as long as I could. Could you tell me a little bit about the, uh, the Shakespeare and original pronunciation movement? Oh, mm. you see, that's the other thing about um, being an applied linguist, at least, that somebody who's interested in the problems of language in the real world. You, you, you never quite understand, know what's going to come up next. There's <laughs> a phone call and suddenly you're in a different world than you've ever been in before. And this is what happened there. Is it? We're talking 2004 now, and I get a phone call from Shakespeare's Globe in London. Okay. The attempt to reconstruct um, the original Globe Theatre that was on the South Bank that burnt down, was rebuilt and then destroyed in the 17th century. And uh, they rebuilt it again in 1997. And it now puts on original plays in, in, with original music, original instruments, original costumes, and all that sort of thing. But they never done original pronunciation, and nor did I expect them to. I mean, you know, I hadn't thought about it until the phone rings one day, and it's a director who says, uh, "David, you know, we're we're thinking it's about time we tried this. What's it like?" And they were scared to put it on because they thought it would be very different, too different for an audience to understand. But in fact, it's not that different from any other accent that you've heard. Instead of hearing, "Oh, for a muse of fire." that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. You hear, oh, for a muse of fire, that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. And you hear that sort of accent, and you think, hey, that, that reminds me of the R after the vowel. In Britain, you'd say, oh, that's in the West Country, Pirates of the Caribbean, and things like that. Right. In America, you'd hear the R after the vowel, and immediately associated with various parts of the States. Um, kingdom for a stage, 
stage. That's an accent that you hear still in Britain today, up in Yorkshire, for instance. So, oh, for a muse of fire, not oh, for a muse of fire, which would be the posh British way of saying it, you know, but oh, for a muse of fire, which you'll hear in Wales or in Ireland and places, and in parts of the States too, suddenly realise that original pronunciation is, is a very familiar kind of accent and one that is understandable. And so suddenly the Globe decided to do it. And so they put on a play and they did it. Well, now, what was the chicken and the egg? Did they, had you already written on it and they thought this is something we'd love to do? No. Okay. I, I, I mean, I'd studied historic, the technical term is historical phonology, the historical study of the development of pronunciation over the centuries. Yeah. And I knew the story of English pronunciation, yes, but never dreamt in a million years that it would ever be useful to anybody, you know, sure. that a theatre would actually want to put it on. But they did, and there are various reasons. One is that it makes you feel closer to Shakespeare. If this is the sort of accent that was being used on the stage in those days, then people feel drawn to it in a certain way. It actually makes the language of Shakespeare easier. Anybody who studied Shakespeare knows that there are lots of rhymes, for instance, that don't work in modern English. Okay. In the sonnets, you know, 154 sonnets, but in 96 of them, there are couplets that don't rhyme. Uh, sonnet 116, if the marriage sonnet, you know, if this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Right. What? Right. Proved and loved? What's going on? Do you Maybe. not know how to I'm Shakespeare. Maybe he's not that great. <laughs> exactly. But what you need to know is that, of course, it rhymed. Uh, and the original rhyme was proved and loved. Proved and loved. Not proved and loo. Right. Now, how do I know that? Well, now you have to go to the sources that people wrote at the time. And when you look at those sources, you see various writers. I'm thinking now of somebody like Ben Johnson, the dramatist, okay. who also wrote a, a, an account of English. And when he writes about the letter O, he says, we say this vowel short in the following words. And he lists the words. And the words are love and glove and brother and prov, wow. you see. <laughs> and so that's how you know. So suddenly rhymes work in Shakespeare that didn't work before and puns work in Shakespeare that didn't work before and all sorts of things. And so... That's the reason why people feel warm, they feel drawn to original pronunciation, to OP, as we call it. And in the States, of course, this is where it went down a storm because, uh, uh, you know, I've spoken to a lot of uh, directors and actors in America now and worked with several of them, and they all tell me the same story. They didn't feel they could own Shakespeare because Shakespeare has to be spoken in the accent of Laurence Olivier and Gilgood and all the great Shakespearean actors of right. the past, you know, this sort of accent, that kind of really true British accent. We don't speak like that, Americans would say. And if we try to, it sounds awful. And so therefore, you know, how can we do shit? They hear OP and realize that actually American English is closer to Shakespeare's English than the modern posh British accent is. And this delights everybody. <laughs> and so, in fact, since 2004, of the 20 or so plays that have been done, or by Shakespeare, I mean, in OP, 
uh, 15 of them have been in the States. And, and, you know, one, one company in the States, in Baltimore, the Baltimore Shakespeare Factory, does an OP production every year. Wow. And so, you know, it's taken off in your country more so actually than it has in Britain. <laughs> what, do, you have, do you have thoughts on that? How come? Well, I think that's great. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm glad because every new play, and it's not just Shakespeare, of course, but any play from that period. Uh, we've also done OP Marlowe, for instance. Okay. Um, Every new play brings to light something we didn't know before. People sometimes say there's nothing new to be learned about Shakespeare. We've been studying him for 400 years. It's all done. Rubbish. Right. If you start looking at him from a pronunciation point of view, every time I see a new play or I analyze, listen to a new play in OP, I learn some, something new, something that hadn't been pointed out before. And only 20 of the plays have been done. So, there's, you know, there's plenty more to be learned about Shakespeare. Now, uh, OP is always contrasted with, you mentioned the received pronunciation. Is the received pronunciation, was that, you know, it, was that just the pronunciation of that, of the day, and that's just what's carried through? Like, where, where, how do we account for the received pronunciation? Other than, it kind of just seems like a very hoity-toity, I'm reading Hamlet, therefore I have to, like, what people have to realize that RP, received pronunciation, is a very recent accent in the history of English. Okay. There was no RP in Shakespeare's day. Right. It developed towards the end of the 18th century, when the class system in English became really dramatically separate with the arrival between the upper class and the lower class. Suddenly, the middle class come along, middle class guys who... Uh, did all the inventions, you know, they, they invented the railways and the textile machines and made new roads and things like this. And they all had a working class background and they didn't have an upper class accent. Right. And so they, you got the development of the elocution movement in the second half of the 18th century, which teaches these people to speak in a posh kind of way. And RP grows out of this. Yeah. You learn to pronounce your H's, for instance, and say, you know, um, harm and not arm, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, you learn uh, to drop the R at the end. The R was still being pronounced, you know, as in arm and heart and car, was still being pronounced in the 18th century. But no, in RP, you don't do it. You say arm and heart and car. See, so you drop the R. So this accent develops at the end of the 18th century, gets taught in all the schools during the 19th century, all the public schools, that is the the fee-paying schools, I mean, uh, became the voice of the British Empire, the voice of the Church of England, the voice of the missionaries, eventually became the voice of the BBC. Right. And okay. it, at the time the 20th century comes along, it is the upper-class accent of Britain and indeed the British Empire, therefore. So you hear it all over the world. And it's still the number one accent that is taught when English is taught in most parts of the world under British influence, not if it's an American accent, of course. Uh, so RP became the posh accent, the, the educated. I prefer educated rather than posh, because it's not just posh people that use it, but an awful lot of people who have gone through the educational system who wouldn't consider themselves posh at all, but they'd still use it. But it's still only used by about, these days, about 2% of the population of England. Right. As little as that. Wow. And I... I... Not, I used here in Wales, for instance. You hardly ever hear it in Wales. Okay, yeah. So the perceive—it's—I think it's perceived, especially too, by Americans as very educated, 
the minute this accent comes on, if I was in a debate, if that person has that accent, it's over. <laughs> At least as the oh, audience. Yes. Yeah, but it's become more complicated than that because you see Hollywood picked it up. And how did Ho- what did Hollywood do to it? Um, well, all the bad guys now speak with RP, don't they? Oh, that's right. Hello, Mr. Bond. <laughs> you know, hello, right. do come in. You know, if, you, if you're a bad guy, then you'll probably have this sort of accent, won't you? <laughs> and a cat, yeah. <laughs> that goes way back. That goes back as far as Errol Flynn. Yeah. Uh, you know, Robin Hood. Oh, right. Errol Flynn, you know, a great British guy. What? But the Sheriff of Nottingham uh, speaks with a very posh accent. You see, he's a bad guy. So it's been around a long time. As far as the Shakespeare plays go, I'm curious, in a time where it seems like most people are going to want to make it... Um, as modern as possible you know maybe that the issue with shakespeare is that he's so far away we don't understand the words you know let's make it as as easy you know we're not very far from oregon as far as the uh the recent modern shakespeare movement goes what is it about original pronunciation that seems to really be gaining traction in this kind of atmosphere it's uh, i i think it's probably because there, there, it, it's partly a reaction against the modern movement, uh, but I, I, don't, I don't like to see it as a confrontation in any, any way. I mean, I love the modern movement. I love to go and see a Shakespeare play set in a gambling casino or something like this and see what happens. Sure. But I also want to see what happens to the play when it is set in its own time. So I, I'm very much, I very much enjoy original practices, and I find a, a lot of people do. And if you're doing original practices, then you need original pronunciation as part of it. Otherwise, it's a bit weird sure. to have yourself in a doublet and hose and everything like this, and you're speaking with a modern, cool accent, you know? <laughs> so, uh, but the important thing, though, is that, as Hamlet says, you know, the play is the thing. Right. Um, I go to an OP play, uh, I want to, to move me, I, I want to feel the play. Uh, if the OP helps me to do that in a way that other accents might not help you to do, or at least it's another tool in the toolkit for the director and the actors. Um, and so I, I'm, I, I, I'm not a you know a, an OP enthusiast in the sense that I I want to see everything in OP sure. always. Better. Oh no no, sure. it's just an alternative way of seeing the plays and getting something extra out of the plays. Sure. And because it can be so illuminating. Um, it uh, in terms of rhymes and jokes and things like that. I mean, there are some jokes that simply do not work in modern English at all. Right. Uh, so the poor old actors struggle <laughs> put this across, but in OP they work. So it has its pluses um, once you get uh, once you once you start watching it, listening to it. Well, in Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet, where you have basically they're using at least the original text with all of the modern. Yeah, that, that's right. And don't, again, there's another mythology here. You say, the original people text. Often say, oh, Shakespeare is very difficult. He's got so many difficult words. Well, you know, he hasn't, you know. If you take all the words in the canon, nearly a million of them altogether, and you go through, as Ben and I did when we were producing the book Shakespeare's Words, or the website now, shakespeareswords.com, we went through the entire canon and underlined every time there was a difficult word, a word that, in other words, isn't used in English anymore or has changed its meaning so much that 
you might have difficulty understanding it. We added them all up and put them in the book and now on the website. But you know, out of that million words, only 5% of those words are difficult. 95% of the words in Shakespeare are still in use today. Now, those 5% are still a very important 5%. And sometimes there are passages in Shakespeare where a lot of them turn up and it is a difficult piece of language to learn. But you can open any Shakespeare page in any play and just look at the page, count them for yourselves, guys, and go down and say, which are the words you don't understand? And you'll find the answer is going to be, you know, on average, 5%, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, of course. But it isn't as big a deal as all that. Right. And that's the point to try and get across to students. The reason why people think Shakespeare is difficult is because they open a book and try to learn it from the book instead of trying to hear it and see it on the stage. You try and get it off the page. They open something like the Arden edition, and there they see three or four lines of text and a whole pile of notes down at the bottom, you know, three quarters of a page of notes. They think, gosh, this must be difficult. And of course, the notes are all about the illusions, the background, the social things of the time. But you get the impression that Shakespeare is hard from this kind of uh, presentation. So I would never recommend that people would start encountering Shakespeare or any dramatist by reading the text first. Go see, hear the play. And then afterwards, use the text to provide greater insight into the play. Right. And you suddenly realize it's not as difficult as all that at all. It really is kind of strange when you think about it in terms of just reading what are the bones of what's supposed to be a, you know, a full influenced yeah. play. I mean, you don't have to understand everything in order to understand what's going on. I've often been to theatres and seen groups of kids, sometimes quite young, nine, ten year olds, as well as teenagers, uh, watching, say, the Comedy of Errors or, or Midsummer Night's Dream, understanding exactly what's going on. Understand every word in it? No. But who cares about that? So long as you're understanding what's going on later, you can hone your understanding so that you understand every word. Because in modern English, we don't understand every word that we use when we talk to each other. I mean, Jake, if I say to you, that guy over there, he's a blithering idiot. <laughs> now, you know what idiot means. You can define that for me. I can. Define blithering for me. And you can't, you know. Right, right. <laughs> All you know is it's an insulting word. But what exactly does it mean? It doesn't matter. Because so long as you know it's an insulting word, a strong word, then that's all you need to know. <laughs> and it's the same with Shakespeare. Shakespeare so often uses words which, so long as you get the gist, the rough impact of it, then you don't need to know exactly what it means in order to see what the play is all about. And sometimes, of course, Shakespeare helps us by giving us a gloss for a difficult word. I mean, take that famous scene in Macbeth, where he taught where Macbeth uh, says the the multitudinous seas incarnadine. You think I know what multitudinous means? Yeah. I know what seas mean. I have no idea what incarnadine means. Shakespeare in the next line tells you, making the green one red. That is the meaning of incarnadine, to make something red. Right. So he helps you out himself. You know, he knows that the word is difficult. So he gives you a helping hand. That's great. That's the mark of a great dramatist. Yeah. And speaking of which, as we as we wrap up here, what 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 is it about Shakespeare that he's still being read today? Uh, and even maybe even amongst his peers, as far as Marlowe was, Marlowe used to be that character, right? 
that everybody was into. And what what about Shakespeare has kind of brought him to the forefront? And even several hundred years later, why are students still reading it, or at least have because? To well, it, it's sad that it one has to use the word have to. Right. You know, one should to. Uh, it should be second nature to want to read Shakespeare, just like one wants to see a certain type of film or follow a certain type of series. The reason is because he holds a mirror up to our natures, to our human natures. Um, I cannot think of an emotion that is not uh, expressed, characterized by an individual or a, or a situation in Shakespeare. There always comes a point where, having uh, encountered a Shakespeare character or a situation on the play as a whole, I end up saying, you know, I'm a bit like that, or I know people are a bit like that, or I've been in a situation about that. And the teenagers, you know, it's exactly the same. You want to know what it's like uh, when your best friend steals your girl? You know, well, right. two gentlemen of Verona. Right. That's exactly what's happening there. You want to know what it's like when you feel so ambitious that you'll kill anybody? You know, well, go see what happens to Macbeth, you know, all of this. You know what happens when you're put in a difficult situation and you don't really want to do it? And how are you going to you have to do it? Well, what do you think? How, how do you think Hamlet would feel about that? Or, you know, what's going to happen to us when we die? Oh, I don't know. Is anybody, how can I get some ideas about that? Well, go read To Be or Not To Be and see what he thinks about it. You know, whatever the emotion is, you're going to find something in Shakespeare. And so long as kids are, are, are told this and, and are given the opportunity to, and here's the point, act it out for themselves. To be Hamlet, to be Macbeth, to be one of the guys in Two Gents or whatever it is. Sure. Just give them the parts. I've seen eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds doing bits of Macbeth, doing Titus Andronicus, for heaven's sake. <laughs> ben, who does this sort of thing, son Ben, who goes into schools an awful lot, uh, tells me this. I don't do it so much, but he tells me he's seen youngsters, you know, acting out some of these very violent scenes. Teachers are saying, oh, dear, no, we mustn't do that. They, Oh, but they love it, of course. They love it. And you say, this is Shakespeare. Really? Oh, I must do some more. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, oh. David, I really appreciate you. Tell, tell us where uh, you mentioned Shakespeare's words. You know, where else uh, can we go to support you? And uh, Well, yeah, the book Shakespeare's Words uh, was around for quite a while, still is in print, but it's only a, a fraction sure. of Shakespeare. You know, the book is only that big, so you can't put everything in. So in 2008, we put the online site, www.shakespeareswords.com, and that contains everything. It contains, you know, all the canon, all the usages. If you want to know how many times Shakespeare uses a particular word, you know, you type the word in and up comes all the context, all the plays, click on the word, you go to the glossary, and there are all sorts of other things. We're still developing the site. Awesome. Uh, next year, we'll put some OP into it, I think, okay. uh, first time. But that's the place to go if you want to see what we're up to in relation to Shakespeare. Fantastic. Well, David, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been a pleasure, Jake. Thanks for the op opportunity and good luck with everything else that your press does. <laughs> thank Forward you, sir. Time. Appreciate you. Okay, bye now.
Thanks again for tuning in this week. If you'd like to know more about Canon Press, please visit us at canonpress.com.